This is Doing Good Through Food. I'm Alex Coffin, and today I'm talking to Chamal Ezel, founder of Change Please and co-founder of the Old Spike Roastery. Change Please is a social enterprise partnership between the Old Spike Roastery and The Big Issue that trains people who are homeless to be baristas. They pay each individual they employ the London living wage, provide extensive barista training and provide housing, bank accounts, therapy support and then work with their staff to help them into onward employment as well. They're able to say that after 10 days of working with them, their staff are no longer homeless. Having started with a few coffee carts in London, they expanded rapidly and now include fixed sites. They open sites outside the capital. They've taken their concept to the United States and now have their coffee sold in major national supermarkets across the UK as well. Jamal is working to make Change Please the UK's fourth biggest coffee chain. So it's fantastic that he's made time to come and talk to me today. Jamal, welcome to Doing Good Through Food. Hey there, Alex. My pleasure. Nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you too. Um, you, I just said in the introduction there that you, you know, you've taken the concept to the to the states, and I thought, you know, just as a sort of first question, because we've got quite a lot of listeners in the states as well. Um, does the concept go across the same in the states as it does in the UK? Is there? Do you have to change what you're doing at all, or is it? Do you think people just get the concept wherever you go? I think um, due to the problem in the US um, being far bigger than it is in the UK, the kind of the public's awareness and and a need for something like Change Please is kind of really obvious. We've had so many emails from people contacting us saying, can we have it in Idaho, San Francisco, to San Diego? I mean, cities I've never really heard of before of contacting us saying how this would work in their, in their particular region, which is just really exciting. I think the slight challenge is there's always a difference in perception um, of people that are homeless in different countries that we work we work in and it's just trying to override that stigma of around homelessness and people see that actually people do want to work it's not in a situation they're not in that situation at choice and actually if we can try and support people before they get into a problem of uh, being dependent on drugs and alcohol and support them before they get to that stage then that's a great opportunity for people to come back into society um, so I think it really differs from not just country to country but kind of state to state in the US and um, it feels like the appetite for doing something or doing good good whilst you're already consuming a product that you would have purchased anyway is really really evident so how how does it vary sort of state to state that's you know that's quite an interesting uh, quite an interesting thing to hear because you know I, I, I thought there might be a difference between the the UK and the US, but um, I hadn't really thought of it in in that detail. Where where have you where are you opened in the in the states at the moment, or where are you where are you trying to get to? Yeah, so we're looking at sites at the moment in New York and in LA and San Francisco, and you know the the understanding of the issues around homelessness will really differ from state to state and from city to city, even so. And we've really seen that. And it's dependent on, you know, has immigration played a part? Has in their in that local community, have people seen the majority of people that are homeless be brought to that situation because of drugs and alcohol addictions, is it mental health um, challenges? And I think in the UK, there's pretty much a high amount of empathy for people that are homeless. And, and we really kind of try to find a solution to fix that problem. And I think in the US, it just differs from state to state and I think that's something that we're 
really interested in and interested in how we can combat that um, those stigmas. And I think we can ultimately do that by, you know, if somebody's walking past somebody in the street that's homeless and then a couple of weeks later you see them serving you coffee and you have a discussion with that person, that will ultimately change that perception around homelessness and give that person um, who's just been served a kind of a different perspective. And then when they're walking past people in the streets who kind of need support, then they won't, we won't put the same labels on all the people um, in the same way and just try and treat each individual person separately. I'd love to just ask you a bit about sort of you and how, how you got into this, because, you know, sort of apart from the company itself, it's like, it seems that you had a bit of a journey of awakening, if you like, you know, a few years ago, you were living quite, quite a different life from what I, from everything I've been able to see in my research. So I mean, how, maybe you could just sort of set out, how did you get from where you were doing the, you know, living the life that you were into what you're doing today? Yeah, so um, a very long story cut short, it's, it really all started in Vietnam. Um, I was traveling on a, um, on a bus going through the central Vietnam and I was with my partner who decided to take a gap year uh, from the NHS to traveling to different parts of Asia and Australasia. And uh, we were in a, uh, on a bus and it was at two o'clock in the morning traveling from Ho Chi Minh City up through the center. And uh, I was absolutely exhausted and an American traveler came and sat next to me on, on the coach. And I just didn't really want to chat. I just wanted to kind of, you know, continue sleeping. And he was just full of beans and wanted to kind of um, you know, n- learn more about me and have a, have a bit of a conversation. And uh, he said something that really changed my life. You know, I said that I wasn't too happy with the job I was doing, which at the time was commodity trading. And I wanted to kind of do something different. And he said, look, Jamal, if you're, if you're not happy with your job, you should do the rocking chair test. So that's to imagine sitting in your rocking chair at the age of 90, looking back on your life, thinking, what have you achieved? What's your legacy on the world? Have you left the world in a better place? And who's going to remember you and for what, you know? And I just went from being absolutely exhausted to being bolt awake, thinking, actually, I'm not that great a person. Everything I've really done in my life has been about myself and, and you know, trying to build assets and make money. And, you know, my parents were immigrants from Cyprus and, you know, they, we, we didn't have the most comfortable of, uh, of upbringings in terms of from, from a financial perspective. So my kind of 20s was all about making money, having financial security, kind of just concentrating on being secure and surviving, really. So then I look back at the age of 29 and think, hang on a minute, this has all really been about me. And anything I look back on when I'm 90 will just be about how I've really helped myself or those people immediately around me. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, we were still in Vietnam and we went to a silent tea house in a place uh, in Vietnam called Hoi An. And it's kind of the centre east of Vietnam. And um, this silent tea house was set up by deaf and mute ladies who had no other opportunities in their village. They came together, um, combined their abilities and created this really amazing tea house where it was full of people and the only rule is you're silent. And that just really, um, really blew me away. You know, just that it was the first time in 29 years I thought, actually, you can do business and good at the same time. It didn't need to be this kind of charge on just making money. And I left, and that was the 23rd of April, 2013. And I said, right, I'm going to set up a silent tea house in Clapham in London. And to be honest, I don't really know why I thought that, because 
I don't really like tea. I hate Clapham and I don't really like silence. So it's not really the start of a good business. And no, um, I, I see some issues. Yeah, exactly. I can't go to my manager and say, please leave me alone. I'm not passionate about any of these topics. And then um, it was just, I, I, I was thinking of the idea. It can stem from tea. Coffee's far more commercial. And then I had the beginnings of the idea and I came back to London and funnily enough, when we arrived back in Paddington, um, I saw a homeless person at Paddington train station holding up a, a cardboard sign saying, keep your coins. I want check." Sorry, I'll start again. He had, he, had a, he had a cardboard sign just keep holding up the word saying change, please. And then um, uh, just really stuck with me, you know, in terms of the double meaning of the words change, please. And then I, a couple of weeks later, I, I saw a, I was at a Banksy exhibition of his street art. And that's where I saw a homeless person, which was painted by Banksy with their hand out saying, keep your coins, I want change. And it was just that double meaning of the word change. And I thought, right, that's it. I'm going to leave my job and set up a social enterprise that helps people who are homeless to be baristas. And, um, and then I joined the School of Social Entrepreneurs uh, in London on Tooley Street. And that's it. It was, um, it was the start of a very long journey. Did, did you have any doubts at the beginning? I mean, because I think quite a lot of people have probably been inspired at some sort of point, but, you know, the, the people who have then followed through to, you know, and seen something through and set up a, something off the back of the idea that they had is is far lower, obviously. Did you, I mean, was, was it as clear cut as it sounds or did you ever start thinking, oh, you know, maybe I should go back to the old life and or was it as clear... Yeah from the beginning think, that this was the path? It's a great question. I think there's obviously doubts along the way, but, you know, perhaps when, when I was a kid and my mum used to say to me, whatever, you, can do, you can be whatever you want to be in your life, you just have to put your mind, mind to it, you know. I probably took that a bit too literally and I um, probably didn't see as many of the negatives or problems or challenges that we, we would face as early. And in a way, that's a negative, but I think the reason why we've achieved so much is is because of that mantra. And I think um, it's that ability to kind of see a challenge and just see it in the horizon and just jump over it. I think that's that's been the core issue. I mean, in hindsight, if you told me back in 2013, everything that we would have had to have gone through to get to where we are today, I'd have been like, right, that's fine. I'm probably going to stay doing what I'm doing, <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm really honest. Um, However, in hindsight, I don't regret one second or one decision. It's been a fantastic journey. We've achieved so much. We've, we've helped so many people's lives. And, and excited, you know, we're really excited about the brand that we're creating and how that's growing um, and how, what it's meaning to people and how, people are, how consumers are applying it into different ways. And I think that's really interesting for us to kind of start an organization which is inspiring people and helping not just the, people, the direct beneficiaries that we're supporting, but helping people to see people who are homeless in a different way. And that's, um, that's what we're really proud about. Yeah, absolutely. And have you, that's, um, that sort of stranger on the bus. Did you stay in touch with, with him? Is that, does he know kind of what he started <laughs> or is this just a, was that a one-time meeting? I, I managed to, this was an 18 hour bus journey that mm. he came on about an hour into it. So there was about 17 hours left. And after about four or five hours of me just being awake, thinking about my life, I managed to get to get to sleep. And then when I woke up, 
um I looked to my left and he wasn't there so um you know maybe he's maybe maybe he, he just came on for one purpose of changing my life and helping me to do good but yeah I never I've never met him since um one of my friends did a very random uh Facebook video just asking if he knew who this, who this guy was um and we didn't yeah. get and surprisingly we didn't get any um any takers but yeah it was uh it may have been a fig an, an angel or it may have been a real person that just kind of said something that made a bit of a difference but you know it, it either way i like to tell that story because it gets me thinking about you know really what's the purpose it's very easy in, in my opinion in life for us to be sucked into the matrix and sucked into the pressures and the strains and the challenges that we face on a day-to-day basis and we we turn go, we go into a fight or flight mode and there's actually one of my friends of mine is writing a book on on this topic and you know there's three things there's fight flight and and seeking and what happens is we we turn off because the fight and flight are so prominent in our day-to-day life from everything from money worries paying you know mortgages relationship challenges um you know whatever the problem is it, it ends up turning off the seeking and that means that we're not actually looking in society mm. for opportunities to to do to do good because we have to we have to be fighting to kind of stay stay afloat. And I think that's a really interesting perspective of mine to try and understand why what we can do to kind of keep that focus on on doing good and on um uh and and focusing on the end outcomes really. Oh, it's fascinating. Um, so when you 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 came back with this this idea and this mission, and you you went to the you said School of Social Enterprise, I think. And then how how did it how did it actually get started? What was the sort of you know the moment it became real? Yeah. So I think what what my initial advice to people is to set up a minimum viable product. And just get it going so you can kind of mm. prove the product and, and and try and make it work and find out the failings so that's what we did we set it up we we brought on board some amazing organizations that were supporting us from a brand development perspective from a marketing pr comms from helping us with our social impact like the big issue have done and um and that was really the kind of initial steps and then we launched in november 2015 and um, at that stage, we started to kind of see what the challenges were. So, you know, people ask you to write a business plan, but you never know in reality what those numbers are going to be. I could have guessed that we'd be making, you know, 700, 600, 500,000 pounds a day on each coffee site. And it turned out we were making 80 pounds a day. And, and I had to self on that from my pocket. You know, we, the problems of where you can put your van locations and all those challenges came up straight away. So you end up just firefighting all those particular problems. And when it became real was actually, you know, we hadn't proven the social impact at that stage. It was just about the coffee and setting it up and employing people who are homeless. And then you actually started to see people coming in, going into accommodation, um, meeting their family for the first time that they haven't seen in a couple of years because they were too embarrassed to tell them they were homeless. You know, those were the things which actually turned it into reality for me, um, seeing the social impact working because, you could set up a coffee van or open a coffee shop and it, you know, we see that everywhere, but proving that the model works from a social perspective 
made it reality. And that's when it became exciting. And when you get excited by that, you then, I think something come, comes over you and you have the bug to, to replicate it as much as you can. And you get that cookie cutter out and say, well, what's working, what's not? Put the what's working into the cookie cutter and keep cutting those cookies and replicating it. And that's, that's, what, that's what, we, what excited me, really, and seeing that growth. Um, and I think the, the second part to that question is uh, we keep, I keep, Reevaluating um, what success actually is. So you know, in the early days, the success was literally about making the model work, and now the success is how do we make it work in three different countries, um, and how what how operationally do we do that? What what infrastructure do we need? What you know, and and that changing those those goals um, keeps me excited, but also keeps the um, keeps us grounded if that makes sense and we're we're always kind of fighting to kind of develop and grow what we're doing and, and learn from the challenges and problems and keep improving mm. so I'd, I'd love to ask you um how how you get the staff so sort of to take it right back how do you you know you, you've got your concept you've got your mission how do you how do you get the the right people that you know the people that you can help involved with the project and how, how does that work yeah so that's that's the most important part of our process so firstly we receive referrals from a range of charities um crisis center point a big issue um local women's refuges for women who are victims of domestic abuse for example um just a range of organizations that are working with people that are homeless um and we then interview those people to see if they're suitable for employment with us. If they are, they then do one month where we then track them on a kind of range of different areas, looking at their reliability, their customer interaction, their money management, and their, um, uh, their I've forgotten the fourth one, I think it's timekeeping or, um, and, and answer their yeah their customer service and customer interaction and I think and if they make it through that process which only around forty percent of people do then that's when they become change pleasing employees and we then uh, because we we're giving that person an amazing opportunity uh, to lift themselves out of, out of homelessness and we're paying them a living wage we provide them with housing bank accounts so we need to make sure that actually we're we're giving the opportunity to the people that. That are ready as opposed to people that that aren't and um and that's really how why that phase is so important because that initial phase is a 40 percent success rate but after people make it through we have an 82 percent success rate which is very very high in that industry of um supporting people um who are homeless and and that's because that that first filtering process is is crucial yeah i mean it must be because you obviously you know, sort of home, homelessness is a bit of a kind of catch-all thing, but you're you're dealing with people who've got quite a lot of quite a range of complex needs and 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 issues. I would imagine. Um, so, when the people, who who exactly are you looking for? When you know, if you're going, if somebody's being referred from Centrepoint or um, or whichever institution it is, I take it you you sort of talk to them. Who, if you're talking to say Centrepoint or something, who who are you saying? You would like them to send you what's the sort of ideal yeah so it's it's very easy to fall into the trap of saying we want somebody who's 
um, who's you know doesn't have a men- uh, doesn't have any mental health issues or doesn't have any alcohol or or drug dependencies or they've just become homeless or you know it's, it's so easy to kind of put people into boxes and I think and that's the biggest risk that we face so what we say to organizations like center point crisis etc is we're looking for people with um, a passion to get out of the situation they're working for what, what that they're in at the moment a passion to really start in employment and succeed in life really and just get out of it and, and, and fight themselves out of the current situation that they're in and someone who has the aptitude to be able to learn and to um, work well in kind of stressful difficult situations and I think they're the kind of fundamental things it's about someone's personality traits more than any prescriptive challenges that they might be facing um, at that particular time and also our, our partners know really what that they've come and met our existing beneficiaries our existing baristas they've seen how they interact with our customers and they get a feeling who of their current beneficiaries that they work with would be suitable for working with us so i think it's been a testament to them and and testament to how much they've understood what our needs are that they've kind of sending people that actually work really well for us are you sort of inundated with potential staff or is it um you know if if you could open would you have enough staff to fill as many as many kind of outlets as you could open or is it is it actually hard to find the people you know the the right people at the outset yeah so i think the answer depends on um how many sites we've got one particular time so when we first opened and we had you know four or five locations we were we we were inundated by people and we couldn't we were pushing a lot of people away and now as we built those relationships and we're growing ourselves we're refining the people that are coming to us and also we who are being referred to us in the first place sorry and also um we're growing new locations so we're not turning as many people away and we've developed partnerships with large catering companies and larger organizations who are also actively looking for people so so we're not turning as many people away because we've got more opportunities on the other side. But there are definitely a lot of people where this works for. And, you know, there's over 8,000 people sleeping rough at any one day across the UK who are homeless. And there's over 150,000 people who are in kind of like temporary accommodation. And so it's kind of the, the who are about to be homeless. And the stats are over 700,000 people who are in sofa surfing and who are hidden homeless so i think there's definitely um a a very large potential workforce that we're tapping into and and genuinely the people that we find that are homeless who wants who are ready to work and who we 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 agree are suitable to work um they make they make for amazing employees you know they genuinely do they they're people that have seen the dark side they've been on the streets they don't want to go back to that site and and that, that situation and they really fight for their job. And, you know, it's, we, we find it easier to find people who are loyal, hardworking, really kind of um, fight our cause, who are, who have been previously homeless, than when we look for people on job sites who know that basically within a week they can find employment elsewhere. So, you know, for us, it's just keep doing more of the same, really, and finding people who have got who have built up passion because they've been put into a hard situation and they 
they want to fight to get themselves out of that situation and then they're not too comfortable and those um um those people that we find are absolute gems and the hardest thing is we need to move those people on because we need to then find up the space to bring new people through so we're at the end of the day getting moving on our, our best employees and no organization does that you know no organization spends a lot of money and time training people then moves them on and that's what we're doing and, and it's something that makes us proud and also sad at the same time to see these really incredible people go and work for other organizations and and um but it does show how many people there are out there that are ready and the only thing that's sitting above them out of the ones that are ready to work are the labels that society puts on those individuals and puts them into the box of those other 60 percent that aren't ready to work and if we can try and find that 40 percent and stop that number of homeless people doubling as it has done since since 2010 and find that 40 percent and bring them into employment that's how we start to get those numbers to reduce um, and that's what we're we're trying to do it's inspiring stuff really um so the um moving people on you know obviously it, it's um it's a, a tough thing for you to do but but it's kind of an important part i think of, of from what i understand or the, the way you conceived it from the outset along with paying a living wage and training and everything else that you've got in place how how important was it to have all of that stuff in in place at the beginning if that is how it's how it was conceived do you do you think you could have added those things in later things like paying the living wage and yeah so i think the the living wage and the housing part were always fundamental to what we did um and how we started um the living wage is going up every year and it's you know businesses are struggling to afford the minimum wage, the increase in the minimum wage, let alone the, the living wage, which you know we pay three pounds more per hour than most high street coffee bars pay. So, but still, we can't speak about helping people to live and come out of homelessness if we're not paying the living wage. So that one was a no-brainer for us, even though it's getting more and more difficult. The housing part was a fundamental part of what why I set this organisation up. I didn't want just to give somebody a job and then just put them back out on the streets and turn up every morning homeless you know I, I wanted that to be a, a fundamental part but then all the rest of the areas were things that came later and they came over making mistakes learning speaking to people what asking them what the challenges were and and then improving step by step so things like a bank account you know it's difficult to get a job if you don't have an address and so if you don't have a bank account and you can't get a bank account if you don't have an address so all those things meant that actually if we're going to really help people we need to we need to organize bank accounts for them and then which is fine and then we started to look at our dropout rate or the people that we were trying to support and couldn't and we were realizing that actually there's so much more that we need to be providing than just a job and housing and actually you know we need to start providing therapy support and uh, clinical psychology psychologists to kind of give people some guidance and um, structure about how to use that additional disposable income they've now got. They're going from the streets to earning now 20, 21,000 pounds a year. How can they manage that? So then we added in therapy support into our mix and, and 
you know, there's probably about 10 other examples of, of that. And we, we, you would never, I think any example in from an entrepreneur, in my opinion is, you know, you will never know everything you need to do. And if you sit kind of in your office or in your bedroom and you're kind of just trying to plan your organization from the beginning, you're never going to know everything. And if that's going to be a problem for you starting, then, then that's, that's the real problem. You know, you need to just start and learn and improve. And the biggest, the biggest thing that's um, led to our success, in my opinion, is we're constantly asking people, you know, what one thing would you change about, about this? Or what one thing would you change about that? And try and seek out criticism and learnings and go and improve on those and use those to kind of build on, on um, what we're doing. And without that, you just, you, you just, in my opinion, do what you know and not, and, and hide away from any criticism and just keep doing the same thing and getting the same results. So for us, it's, um, it, it, it was about doing what was fundamental, which was the housing and the, and the living wage, and then adding the areas that we saw were absolutely fundamental to making the process a success. And that's what we've been doing to kind of, um, uh, to kind of make sure it works really. Brilliant. Um, I just like to, I, I sort of mentioned in the beginning the old spike roastery as well, which is is uh, which you co-founded, I believe, um, and they they sort of. I was just wondering how how closely these two organisations are linked because in I think in the early days it certainly seemed that it was, um, you know, it was the partnership between old spike roastery and the big issue, and this was the output. Has has that changed? Is is change please really kind of become its own organization in a way how how are they linked and do they sort of support each other still and how does it work yeah so um it's a really good question i think you know the original protest was that um change please was you know i was a co-founder of old spike and also we got some really invaluable support from big issue so it where big issue supported us with the learnings and the challenges around homelessness and really supported us with their brand and, and their reach which was absolutely um a key foundation of what we are and how we developed and then old spike was the coffee knowledge which added into the mix and you know we, we combined the two together to create change please which has in its own right just become a in my opinion a bit of a phenomenon and really grown incredibly quickly and and, and doing some amazing things um so the relationship's still there but it's it's almost in a way outgrown the old spike relationship in a way because um you know it's old spike's got a 12 kilo coffee roaster and we're now supplying into sainsbury's and we're doing 35 ton contracts of coffee with a range of different organizations and you know that means that we've kind of outstripped that capacity to be able to roast so we've now kind of gone in to do our own thing and still working as a sister organization, sharing best practice. We have a, a foundation charity that we've just set up, which is almost sitting next to both of Change Please and Ospite and allowing us to improve and, and sharpen up our social impact. Um, so we still sit very closely together, but that original coffee supply and, and um, original relationship changed over the years. And we still do what we do in a, really positive way but change piece has gone in a slightly different direction and grown um a lot quicker than we expected so that's why that's happened 
And do you, do you think it's just sort of inherently a business that is more able to scale? It's it's something like you said. You know, you've got this kind of this process, this kind of almost cookie cutter kind of um, thing that you can do there. And I suppose. I suppose that you can't do that in the same way with the roastery, or or it would be difficult to. Is that is it? Um, yeah, I think that, that they're just fundamentally different businesses. Exactly. If you want to grow a coffee roastery, you just buy a bigger roaster in, in the same site, and the proportion of coffee which you roast doesn't. Sorry, the proportion of people you employ doesn't link directly to the proportion of coffee that you roast, but in a coffee shop or coffee bars on the street. The proportion of, of revenue you have is is quite closely connected to the amount of employees that you can employ in that site and and your capacity to kind of deliver those orders. Whereas in a in a coffee roastery, it's just you increase your roaster size, you buy more coffee, you put more coffee in, you roast longer hours, you it it, it doesn't allow us to help more people. So that's why it's far easier to deliver the social impact through the coffee bars and the espresso bars around the country than it is to keep buying new coffee roasters and, and bigger, bigger locations so that's that's why the scale for us is or the social impact is linked a lot closer to our scale in change fees than it is in our spike and um but still you know the work that old spike does and we do at old spike is absolutely fundamental and it really helps to provide a lot of employment for people um it's just not a scalable in a way from a social impact perspective, but actually far more scalable in a way from a commercial perspective. So yeah, it just it's it's the oddities of social business where you're looking at employment and how many people you can support and employ as opposed to just how much GP you can generate through your roasting production, but then not employing as many people as you would want from a social impact perspective. So it it's it's um it's at odds with traditional business, but in very much in line with social impact and social enterprise. Excellent. One one of the things I want to really uh, ask you about, and I guess it's kind of related, but um, I suppose is is marketing. And I, in doing my research for this, I've just been. I, I think that you. I I would guess I, I think that a big part of your success, or perhaps the you know the way you've been able to grow as quickly as you have, is that you 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 are communicating really sort of very clearly what you're about um i would say and i was wondering is that something that just does that just come from being clear about the mission and the concept or has that has it been a sort of process to work out how to actually explain what you're about to the customers in in the you know in the sites and and also in your kind of like your retail operation as well yeah so so we're now two and a half years into our journey with our, with change fees, and what we do is pretty straightforward and um, or straightforward for people to understand. And I think uh, so that makes it very easy to communicate. But over the last two and a half years, we've realised that the needs of consumers or the the reasons people will purchase coffee is very much linked to the perceptions around things like coffee quality, price, um, convenience, and then social part kind of comes a little bit down the line in some instances. I might sound like a bit of a cynic when I say that, but it is genu- genuinely the truth. And that's not for everybody. It's the majority, though. And therefore, that learn those learnings in supermarkets, in coffee retail, in 
uh, corporate settings, actually corporate settings are slightly different, but in, you know, the majority of settings have meant that at the moment we started to change our messaging to be more around taste, quality, um, um, and convenience and ability to purchase and, you know, it, to, to make essentially doing good easy. You know, you look at a range of examples of that and things like the carrier bag, um, the use of carrier bags in our society. You know, we all knew that carrier bags were bad for our society. They were awful for an environment, for landfill. And it's still, people continue to use them. And as soon as someone, so the government implemented a 5p tax, you just saw the use of carrier bags absolutely plummet. And, and so people know it was still the right thing to do, but they, it took an inconvenience or a tax for that to happen. And I think that was a, that's a huge learning for us. And we see the same thing with um, the reusable cups. You know, you offer people a 50p discount if they bring their own reusable cups and it doesn't really make a huge difference. You change the price to um, reduce the price by 50p if they bring their own reusable cups and, and give them a penalty if they, um, if, if they have to use a disposable cup. And then you start seeing the use of disposable cups absolutely drop. So again, it has to be made convenient for people to have uh, to to, be, to to do good, and that's why our marketing is changing at the moment to be more about coffee quality, taste, um, looking at the price of the product, and that's the power, that that's the that's the focus. And then it's oh by the way, we lift people off the streets, and there's no compromise um, when we're doing that. So that's been that's been a learning that we've put in place for we're going to start putting in place now. And especially internationally as well. Um, and it'd be about coffee taste and the quality first, and then it would be a bonus that we're doing good. Um, and that's something that we're we're implementing. Uh, it's fascinating, and I've I've heard uh, similar sort of messages, similar kind of um, discoveries, you know, that people have made in in other conversations I've had. You know, it's it's um, I think it's important an important thing to remember if you're trying to do something that is uh you know ethically driven and sort of something that matters a lot to you it kind of to get people on board with that you have to um you might have to sort of adjust the message or you know look at it from from just a sort of purely commercial perspective and then drive the social value through as a as a sort of add-on almost even if it's the big thing for you but that's it's fascinating stuff um I was, I just wondered, I, I saw you, you, um, you won an award recently, a, a big award. You won the, uh, the Chivas International um, Prize. And I, I saw, I, it wasn't actually the, the prize so much, but I saw that you'd, uh, you'd, you'd done some public speaking, coaching stuff um, sort of as part of that. I think, I think um, it was a pitch process as I understand it and there was I was just wondering whether you learn anything from going through that kind of pitching process about how to communicate what you do that you're going to take back into the business and, and, and what that might be yeah absolutely I mean um just to say if anybody's ever looking for a, a good public speaking coach I mean the best public speaking coach there's a guy called Simon Bucknell that is absolutely amazing he won the Toastmaster competition for the UK, he's the UK's best public speak, speaker, um, and he came second in the world finals last year. So 
this guy is absolutely phenomenal and I'm not on any bonuses or anything to kind of like get him, uh, get him more work, but he's just, he, he's next level. And he really he came to Amsterdam and before Amsterdam for the Chivas venture where we were pitching to 3,000 people, you know, and 4 million people around the world watching, he really kind of gave us the information and knowledge to be able to kind of um, communicate what we do well. And what I, apart from, the kind of the basic skills like intonation, how you speak, how you, what you focus on. Really, what I took away was um, just having a clear message and going back to the previous point, having a really focused, clear message and thinking about the tapping into people's imagination and getting people to, to put that transfer of ownership on of the problem and getting people to see the problem from their perspective so they they kind of um, transport themselves into your shoes and they really understand um, why you're doing this, why it's important to do good, whether it's environmentally, whether it's to use waste fruit, which would normally get thrown away or kind of odd shaped fruit, you know, whatever your, whatever the, whatever the organization's goals are and mission to kind of allow consumers to put themselves into your shoes to kind of um, see how, how it affects them. And that's really what I learned of kind of the best way to communicate your brand and your product. And, you know, in our perspective, we all walk past people every day who's homeless and we all, we all don't know what to do. You know, do you give that person money? Do you not give them money? Cause you keep, you, you know, they might spend on drugs and alcohol or do you keep walking or, you know, that, that kind of paralysis of decision and that post walking away cognitive dissonance that you have of trying to justify yourself as being a good person. And then not not helping that person and giving a, a justification of that internally is something that we all face. And what I found really interesting is understanding what those observations are of the problems that we all face and using that in communication to um, to communicate our messaging to our staff, to our employees, and um, and that's really vital to kind of make sure we we pass on our messaging in, in that way. I think. Well, that's, yeah, that's a fascinating to hear, really. It's, um, I think it's something that sort of, I, I expect the people listening to this will find that, yeah, very useful. And they're probably trying to, trying to sort of formulate what it is that they do in a similar sort of a way. Um, we, I, I'd like to just ask you, I mean, again, I, I sort of mentioned in the beginning, you're, and we, and we talked about it briefly, you're, you're becoming an international organization your your sort of your plans are your future plans are sort of growth on a on a large scale generally um but you're you're sort of still quite young as a company i suppose you you know like you said a couple two and a half years into the venture and i was wondering why why do you think why did you feel it was the right time now to sort of to move into other countries and, and why the u.s in particular yeah i mean I don't know if it is the right time. And I suppose when I set up the organization two and a half years ago, um, I didn't know if it was the right time then. You know, you just don't know. But it's, um, I got a bit of mentoring from, and I'm not, I don't know one um, criticize me for name dropping, but um, from, from Richard Branson. And he said to me that, you know, if somebody gives you an opportunity, you don't know how to do it. Just say yes and learn how to do it later. And I think that's a, message that sometimes put me in a bit of trouble but in 99% of cases 
meant that we've taken opportunities and we've run with them. And I went other people have said no, and we've kind of stretched ourselves probably a bit too far, but we've delivered on them. And I think we're at a stage now where the model works. We've got international exposure through the Chibas Venture and other other things that have happened. And you know, if if you could see our, our inbox on a daily basis of people emailing in and asking about when how we can open in their towns and cities and what we can do to kind of spread this to not just in the US but to to site you know Perth, Sydney, or um, Paris, you know, just every, every day we're having people just asking if they can franchise this model. So that might not mean it's not it's the right time or not, but it does mean that the opportunity could add value into those particular cities. So for me that being an opportunist and a, and a maverick entrepreneur, I think that's what um, drives me. And you know, we're still um, finalizing how the model will actually work in in the US, especially um, because you need to develop those relationships that we have with Crisis and Centerpoint, Big Issue, and do the same in the US. But it doesn't mean it's the right or wrong time. It just means that we're going to keep pushing and growing. And and if we feel we're ready, then we'll just press the button and we're ready to go. And I think that for me is um, something that's very important, not just to, 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 to not stop progress, to keep developing and learning. And I think that's that's what my personality type is. And I've, you know, the majority of people I meet say it might things might be the wrong thing to do, but for me it's about what feels right and and just going and delivering on them really. We only live once, so just you know, delivering as much as we can. Go for it. Yeah, absolutely. So so when when those people are asking you about um, you know, franchising the model or um something like that licensing it perhaps are, are they what do you what do you say i suppose is the question do you are you looking to it sounds like you are you kind of for this move into the us you are you're doing it it would be it would be a single company you're not is that right or would you would you sort of look yeah. at doing a kind of hands-off franchised version of things no so initially we've set up in the us as a 501c3 charity which is a public charity um so the 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 structure and we're also now going to be moving to social enterprise from social enterprise to the charity in the uk so the but the legal structures the requirements and charities in in the us are slightly different so so the model will be different in the us and um it's just a case of kind of understanding how it works really and how who we need who we need to partner with in relevant areas but i think franchising is definitely a way to grow after you've built up your model and make sure your dna works in a particular city so at the moment we're saying to people that uh franchising is an, an opportunity but not until a couple of years after we've set up and built up the relationships that we have in the uk so it's definitely something that we've got in mind but it's, it's not going to be how we start in the u.s so what what help are you looking for? I mean, you've obviously you've sort of built this stuff through through partnerships, and you're you're going to build those crisis center point kind of equivalent partnerships in in the states. Are you are you looking for sort of support more more broadly, or does that does that need to happen first before anything else kind of comes after? Or if, if I suppose essentially, if there's someone listening to this and they want to help sounds like you're inundated with offers of help but i mean what what would is there anything that you need what what are you what are you looking for yeah i mean the, so the way we're starting really is the way we've the way we've really grown in the uk and that's with corporate and catering relationships so 
opening in uh, corporate locations, in offices, in banks, law firms, and um, replacing Starbucks and Costas that exist in those particular offices. Um, that's that's the way we're starting, and that's how that's going to generate income and generate opportunities in the in the, in in New York and San Fran to start with. And I think thereafter, we're anyone who's got those those relationships with catering companies, particularly in the US, are uh, is definitely something that we'll be looking to 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 work with. And then the next step is, it always comes down to finance, marketing, um, experience in the coffee world. Um, there are definitely opportunities which and and partnerships that we're looking to develop. It starts with the commercial in our perspective. We generate income, we we and then we use that income for good, and a hundred percent of that income we use for good. So the first case is to create the commercial um, footprint and develop a model that works commercially, and then start to kind of grow and use that money for a good purpose. I mean, we'd be happy in the first instance to even donate a hundred percent of our uh, earnings, our profits to local ch- homeless charities in the first kind of like three or four months whilst we're generating income and developing our social impact model. But there afterwards, um, it, it, it's about growing those relationships that we develop. It, I suppose just as a kind of final, uh, one, one last question on this kind of, this bit in the future. Is, is there a, do you think there's a natural limit on how big you can grow in, in the UK? I've heard you say you want to be the, the fourth biggest operator is that is that sort of is the limit on that logistics and and sort of the number of people you can help or do you is it really kind of sky's the limit in theory um i think the limit the only limit is the limit we set on ourselves really in this instance because um realistically it's about building a team big enough to deliver that growth and having the finances and capital to kind of deliver deliver that um but on, on those opportunities and i think the biggest challenge is obviously growing too quickly and we don't want that to happen but obviously we also want to keep growing until until we put, put out of business and we're going to be put out of business when homelessness ends in the uk and then we'll just move to the city and do it there as well you know so and, and that, that's all we're aiming for really we're, we're basically set up in a way to be put out of business by achieving our social impact goals. And that's why we're not really investable from a commercial perspective for somebody looking at it to come in and have an exit because our exit is the, the headline on the front of a newspaper saying there's there's no more homelessness in the UK. So until that happens and until we've, as long as we can still still keep, keep building a team and, and generating income and revenue to keep growing, then uh yeah sky's the limit as we sort of draw it to a close i I ask i tend to ask more a few more general questions there's a might be a little bit more sort of quick fire but it's a bit sort of slightly more um slightly more general so i thought i'd I'd kind of chuck a couple of those at you if that's all right um in the context of food if i if i say success who do you think of and why oh um great question i very People might not like this answer, but you look at organisations like McDonald's and they have done an amazing job at being able to franchise their organisation and keep quality control and standards. I recently went to 
a talk by what like a guy from who kind of heads up the franchising in the UK from McDonald's kind of sat down with us and um and gave us a kind of bit of a breakdown about how they how they franchise and what they look for and how they do it. And I was absolutely blown away by the process, what they look for in their franchisees, um the passion people need to show, the kind of and you know, you just see them uh innovating from a franchise perspective, but then also look at how they really attacking in the coffee space. You know, the biggest coffee purchases in the UK are not Starbucks and not Costa and not Nero, it's McDonald's. And people just don't people don't know that. And they've really helped to combat the stereotypes that people might have around their business and use marketing and PR in a way which overcomes the preconceptions that people have about their organization. And I'm not saying they're perfect and they've, you know, I boycotted them for quite a few years for, you know, health reasons and environmental reasons, but from what they've achieved from a business perspective for franchising and, and changing perceptions around coffee, except, especially is, is really, is really impressive. And then from a non kind of, uh, I mean, from a, from a non say quality perspective, although they are great at quality, looking at companies like Graze for me have been a massive inspiration, looking at how they use data, to understand their consumers, understand what sells, what doesn't sell, and and really refine their offering is, is a massive um, inspiration. You know how they use their packaging; it's all done internally, and and what paper they use, and so on and so forth. Um, another company is Lush. I know it's not a food brand, but uh, Lush Cosmetics. We're doing a um, partnership with them at the moment, and you know we, we're looking at reusable cups and the the level of detail they've gone through. To select the the, pla- the reusable cup is just beyond belief. I mean, they rejected about three or four companies based on where what resin is used or where some of the silicon is purchased from. You know, it just they for me are redefining what doing good actually is, and is is hugely inspirational. Um, and from a from a personal perspective, um, you know, we've got three restaurants within our group, and um, that's you know we, we've we've set up we've set up with kind of minimal money and we've uh, one of them coal rooms won best sunday roast in london and best um um best bacon sandwich in london and those kind of things and uh it's just become so popular and i think that's that's also been a huge inspiration to our team to see how you know even though we're not talking about our social impact and our social mission because we're worried that the stigma around homelessness will feed into people's I think it works fine in coffee because you can see the process. But when you're a chef, for example, and you're and, sorry, and if you're homeless and you're cooking in an environment where you can't see what's happening, I think that stigma does have an effect. And we've won a lot of recognition for the quality of our food, and and people don't even know that we're doing social good. And I think that's a great um, message to people to kind of focus on the quality of your product, the offering, and let the let the social part be be secondary and that's that's um that's that's a lovely message that i like to put out to people i think that's a lovely message to to leave things on we need to we do need to wrap it up unfortunately i'm sure there's lots more that we could talk about but um is there anything that you would like to you know any way you'd like to direct people to having listened to this you know the, the people still listening would you like them to go and um is there you know see your website or do anything in particular 
Yeah, I mean, not not necessarily from a change things perspective, apart from if you see our coffee sites, pick up a coffee, see us in Sainsbury's, um, uh, buy one of the bags. If your if your if your office uses coffee in any way, mm. then get in touch. That'd be absolutely fantastic. But what I'd like to say is, you know, if you're someone who's working in an organisation and in a corporate organisation, you're happy with what you're doing, become a social entrepreneur. See how your organisation can do social good internally. Um, if you're thinking about leaving and you want to set up your own business, think about how you can incorporate social change or social impact into what you're doing. I think that's really important. But also, um, you know, and I'd like to direct people to organisations like the School for Social Entrepreneurs, um, Inspire to Enter- Enterprise, um, SC UK, which stands for Social Enterprise UK, Unlimited, just some really amazing organisations out there um, who want to help people to become social entrepreneurs. Um, groups like Big Issue Invest. Um, there's just so many organisations out there that can really make a difference to helping people to become better, uh, to become social entrepreneurs in the first instance, or or look at just helping our environment or our society and and just do things in a better way, really, which are more sustainable for our future. So I think that's um, a message I'd like to end on and just think about how anybody can just incorporate social good either through their supply chain or themselves back into our society because that's really how, um, you know, if we don't start doing that through our society now, then I don't think we really have a society in the, in the future. And I think that's, that's really how we're going we're gonna to end up doing it. Well, that's, I think that's a fantastic place to leave it. I'll, I'll put some of those links in the in the uh, the show notes when this goes out, so people can just kind of click through on it if they if they do want to look into any of that further. Um, but we'll leave it there. I'd just like to say thank you very very much for your time. It's fascinating to talk to you, and uh, you know to the people listening as well. Thank you for your time. But Jamal, thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks, Alex.